Zechariah 1, 18 through 21. And I lifted my eyes, and I saw, and behold, four horns. And I saw the angel who talked with me. Who are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I said, What are these coming to do? He said, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations, to lift up their horns against the land of Judah, to scatter it. And then chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the lidded cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back in the basket and thrust down the leaded weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and I saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between the earth and the heaven. They said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, To the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And there, and when it is, and, and when this is prepared, they will set the basket down on its base. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Kristen. Thank you so much, Eric. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis, an author, describes a young man who is tormented by a red lizard. Yes, I said a red lizard. And if you read that book, that red lizard is up on that young man's shoulder. That gives you the creeps, doesn't it? And that red lizard is on that young man's shoulder, mocking him. And for C.S. Lewis, the author, that lizard represents indwelling sin, the indwelling sin in all of us that we all struggle with. And in that moment in C.S. Lewis's book, an angel comes, really a representative of God, and promises to get rid of the red lizard. And the young man, for a moment, thinks about it and takes great joy in that possibility until he realizes that in order to be a free man, God will have to kill the lizard. The young man wrestles in his heart because he wonders. He wonders if he can actually live without the lizard. And maybe that's you this morning. Can I actually live with out that pet sin that I love so much? The young man thinks, will destroying the sin actually destroy me? Or will it be the path to true joy and true life and true peace? And I'm here to tell you it's the latter. You may be deceived like many of us are, into thinking that the red lizard of sin will give true life and joy and peace. But let me tell you, my friends, you can live without the red lizard. (laughs) 
and actually you haven't lived yet until God is at work in your heart. So this young man is uncertain. So he tries to talk the angel out of destroying the lizard. He says something like this, maybe you don't have to kill it. Maybe you don't have to get rid of it entirely. Can't we just do this whole getting rid of the lizard thing another time? And the angel says in that moment, in this moment are all moments. Either you want the red lizard to live or you do not. The lizard turns to the young man in that moment and speaks. Extra creepy, right? And this is what he says, the lizard. Be careful. The angel can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from him and I'm done. If you're visiting with us, we're so glad you're here. We are three sermons into our new series in Zechariah. We're calling it Rebuilt Hearts and Restored Hopes. And I want to do a brief review for you so you can catch up. This morning, because maybe you've never read the book of Zechariah before. Um, It is uh, the, the second to the last book in the Old Testament. It's to the left of our Italian prophet friend, Malachi. So if you're looking for that, just open up your Bible. And here's the quick review. So much of Zechariah is written in a type of genre called apocalyptic imagery. It's made up of wild visions and dreams and symbols, the type that you get if you eat cheese before you go to bed. And it's easy to get lost in all the details. But what we said is, instead of getting lost in all the details, we want to encourage you to focus on the big picture of what God is saying to you. Second, you need to know the context of this book, Zechariah. The people of Israel have recently returned from 70 years of Babylonian exile. That'd be like if Russia or China came and picked you up from out of your home in Powdersville and took you off to slavery in their country, okay? So the people of God have been in Babylonian exile for 70 years. God told them to rebuild the physical temple, but they let inward and outward pressures The pressures of life keep them from obeying him for 17 years. And there, the beginnings of the foundation of the temple just lay there for 17 years, and they don't finish it until Zechariah the prophet came on the scene and called them to repentance. And here's the good news. They repented. And here's the good news. You can repent too, and I can too this morning. That repentance led Zechariah to give these visions to them, which ultimately end up pointing to Jesus. So if you could stay the length of our sermon series, we'd get to vision four and five, which are the crux of the visions. And those visions point us forward into history to Jesus, who is the priest king who ultimately pardons his people by his sacrifice on the cross and empowers them for mission by his spirit. Third, these eight visions earlier on in the book, they set up a chiastic structure. And I know I lost some of you guys when I said chiastic structure, okay? But the word chiasm doesn't need to put you in a coma and it doesn't make you need to cuss or anything like that. It makes you need to celebrate, okay, this morning. And what chiasms are is 
they actually, in this book, they pair certain visions together. So the first vision and the eighth vision pair in theme. And I covered that last week. And the reason why Kristen read the second and the seventh vision of Zechariah together is because they also pair. And then the next one and the next one and so on. So today we are planning to look at vision two and vision seven. And admittedly, it's harder to see what they have in common with them on service level, first reading. So that's why I'm gonna give you a little spoiler and tell you what they have in common. And then we'll read the angel's interpretation and he'll back up what I'm saying. What ties vision two and seven together is the theme of sin. All right, everybody say sin. Were you surprised I was gonna talk about sin this morning? Okay, anybody? All right, in generations past, there's an old joke. You remember that old joke? A husband comes home from church. The wife didn't get to go. So she asked, what did the pastor speak on today? Answer, the same thing he does every week, sin. But I don't think that joke would make as much sense in today's time and culture. It wouldn't resonate like it used to. Why? Well, as one author said, sin once was a strong, ominous, and serious word in society and churches, but that word went away. It has almost disappeared. That is the word along with its notion. But that's not what God does in the Bible. God speaks often about sin, unapologetically about sin, soberly about sin. And yet, thank God he speaks redemptively about sin. And it's no no different here in vision two. The title of my sermon is Make War on Your Sin. Make War on Your Sin. I got three points and maybe a poem and we'll see how it goes, all right? So first point. Sin remembered. First point, sin remembered. So let's look at vision two. It's the four horns and the four craftsmen. And think about sin remembered. So maybe if you were staying up late and talking to Zachariah and he just woke up from those eight visions in that series, maybe this vision, vision two, would have looked something like this, if we've got it back there. It's back there. Whoa, what is that? You see that, kids? What is on the screen? Those are four horns and four what? Craftsmen, right? There you go. So Zechariah sees four huge horns in the first part of his dream, right? He wasn't seeing musical instruments like a trumpet. He was seeing horns like a bullhorn or an ox horn. In the Old Testament, they were symbols of strength and power and military prowess. But he didn't know what the horns meant. So his, he asked his angelic guide, and the angel said this, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And I believe the angel was saying the four horns symbolized Assyria and Babylon, the nations that attacked and then scattered Israel away to exile in a foreign land. And I think there's only four horns because the number four in Judaism represents completeness and totality. So God had warned Israel in texts like Leviticus 26.33, that they would be scattered into exile if they didn't repent of their sins. And God completely kept his promise by sending a complete number of enemies to devastate Israel. If you look at Israel's history, Assyria scattered the northern tribes of Israel in 722 BC. 
And about 100 years later, Babylon scattered the southern tribes of Judah in 587 BC. So you can drop that image. Thank you. So in the opening of the vision, God reminds them of the serious consequence of past sin. And you may say, well, why would God do this? Is God trying to throw up their sins in their face? Well, I don't think so. I believe what God is doing is a good thing. He's trying in that moment to remind them of his justice and his mercy. I'll show you what I mean. So in verse 20, the, sh- the scene shifts and the four horns are replaced by who? Or joined by the four craftsmen. Why the craftsmen? Well, similar to the horns, craftsmen would communicate power and military might. A country having the resources to forge and build weapons and various materials to overcome an enemy. And again, there are four craftsmen, which is symbolizing completeness. Zechariah asked the angel not what these craftsmen represent, as he did about the horns. Instead, he asked them, what are the craftsmen coming to do? And what's the answer? Look at the end of verse 20. What are they coming to do? To scatter the horns. So there is some justice playing out here. Israel gets brutally scattered in verse 19. And then in verse 21, God raises up another nation to scatter the ones who scattered them. The four craftsmen most likely represent Persia. The four craftsmen scatter the four horns of Babylon when they conquer them in 539 BC. So what do we see here in the vision, in the opening vision of chapter two? What are we seeing? First, we're seeing that God is just. See, those who assaulted God's people will eventually find themselves under assault by God. God raised up Persia in his time to put down Babylon for all the injustices that they committed against Israel. And as one author put it, This justice is both actual and poetic. What do I mean by poetic? You see all the the mentioning of lifting up, lifting up, lifting up. The nations lifted up their horns against Israel so that no man could lift up their head. And God in his sovereign justice has lifted up the powerful horn of Persia to terrify and cast down the horns of Israel's oppressors, Assyrian Babylon, so that Israel can now lift their heads back up and the land of Jerusalem. That's what's happening. So what's the lesson for us? We can trust God to bring justice in his time. We don't have to take revenge against our oppressors. Instead, we can do something crazy. We can pray for those who persecute us. We can bless those who persecute us. We can return love for evil. Why? Because Romans 12, 19 says this, vengeance is the Lord's. So I got a question this morning. Are you trusting in God's justice and in his timing? Are you trying to take it in your own hands? Maybe in your home, maybe with your spouse, maybe with your kids, maybe with your coworkers. God's calling us to rest in his justice. As one author puts it, for those who repent of sin and come to faith in Jesus Christ, justice came at the cross, the cross of Jesus. When our Savior suffered and died in our place for our sins, that's when justice fell. 
But for those who don't repent of sin and come to faith in Jesus Christ, they will have justice in punishment of eternal hell. See, no one gets away with sin. The second thing I see in this second vision is we see God's mercy to the repentant. Israel wasn't innocent either, and neither are we. Why did they get led away to 70 years of exile? Because of their idolatry before God, because their lack of love and obedience before the Lord. But in this text, I even see God's mercy. Verse 21 tells us the four horns of Babylon scattered Israel to no one was able to raise their heads. Have you ever been there because of your own disobedience and your own rebellion and you're living in shame and guilt and you feel beat down because of your sin and sin circumstances? This language right here is poetic and it's saying Israel had faced absolute defeat. It was a TKO knockout and they couldn't get back up. What's the text saying? It's saying God's mercy can redeem and save and pick up. God's mercy can do the impossible. He forgives repentant people. He destroys their enemies. And what greater enemies do we have than our own sin? And and what greater enemy do we have than hell itself? And God brings his people in this text back into the land. This is something awesome about God and his mercy. And in this context, they come to repent before the Lord And God empowers them to build the temple. After 17 years of stalling out, right, and doing nothing, God is merciful and gives second chances. Do you believe that this morning? He gives you 14th chances. I'm so thankful he gives me 300th chances this morning. And he's behind it, extending his mercy to forgive and to save and redeem. See, God wants us to remember our sin but not because he's trying to hang it over our heads. He wants us to remember our sins so we can put our trust in his justice and we can put our trust in his mercy to the repentant. And I pray you would this morning. Second point, not just sin remembered, sin rejected. So let's look at the vision, vision's pair, vision seven, Zechariah five, five through 11. So Zechariah, It's going to look something like this. You got that uh, image up there? There it is. What is that? Kids, we got some ladies who got stork wings flying, and there's a woman in a basket, okay? Yeah, I didn't think you would be reading about that this morning, did you? Okay. So Zachariah is talking to his angelic guide and wants to know what he sees floating through the sky before his eyes. That's what he's seeing in this vision, okay? Verse 5, and... He wants to know what's going out. That is, what's been taken away? The answer, you tell me, what's being taken away? Tell me. A basket, right? Zechariah tells him in verse 6 what, what the basket represents. You tell me what the basket represents. You see the picture, but what does the angelic guy tell him the basket represents? What does it represent? Sin, wickedness, right? He says that is, the basket is there. That is Israel's iniquity or sin. And then we were told in verse 7 that there's a heavy leaden lid on top of the basket, and it's lifted for a closer look to see what's inside. Well, usually in baskets, you find Easter eggs, right, kids? Or you find a fruit in the basket. In Zachariah's day, you would expect about 50 pounds of grain to be in this particular kind of bushel basket. But nope, it's a woman. She's trapped in there like a genie in a lamp. 
But why is a woman representing or personifying sin and not a man representing and personifying sin here? Well, I don't know. I feel like men are more sinful than women, so I don't know what the deal is. First time I got an amen this morning? Man, all right. But really, this is what I'm guessing. I'm believing the imagery was like that because it resonated more with Israel. What do I mean? In Israel's past, Israel was often led into false worship, false worship of female gods by forbidden relationships with foreign women. Please do not make me say that again, okay? It's too many Fs, okay? Um, That's the truth. And so when they would see this woman flying in this basket, most likely in their brains, as they're having this interchange and exchange, they would think, man, this actually represents me. It represents all the lust in my heart. It represents the wickedness in my life. It represents those wickedness of idolatry worship. And they see that and it resonates with them because God is a personal God. And verse 8 says, the angelic guide says, this is wickedness. He's referring to the basket and the woman. Now, don't breeze over, over that designation, okay? What do I mean by that? The angelic guide is God's representative, and he calls sin, sin. He doesn't do what we often do in softening what God says about sin. In our society, people no longer commit adultery. They have affairs. Well, affairs, that sounds fun, right? In the language, like we no longer steal, we merely commit fraud. I don't get sinfully angry. I just get a little frustrated. And maybe a little hangry, you know? I don't, get, I don't get sinfully angry, but the angelic guy doesn't minimize or reduce sin. He labels it as wicked. Why? Because all sin is first and foremost committed against the holy God. This means that nothing God calls sin should be labeled no big deal. Whether it's the rejection of God's good design by affirming homosexuality or transgenderism, or if it's found in the idolatry of self. You guys know what I'm talking about? The idolatry of sports, the idolatry of politics, the idolatry of, an, of the nuclear family, right? Those are the more of the conservative circle sins, right? This means, this text is showing us that we should not play the game of their sin is worse than my sin, right? You guys know that game? makes you feel a little bit better about yourself, right? And we shouldn't play the game of outward sin is worse than inward sin. It's not a big deal that I have this outward sin in my heart against other people. One author says the respectable sins of the church, like discontentment, right? It's me this morning. I'm not preaching to you about discontentment. I struggle with discontentment. Respectable sins like selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience, judgmentalism, jealousy, and unkind words and attitudes. These are deadly as well. I've always thought it was really interesting in James 4.16, James gives a hypothetical to a businessman who is in his pride boasting. And he says this, Tomorrow I'm going to that town to spend a year and make a killing. He follows it by saying, this is what James says about that. All such boasting is, y'all fill in the blank. Anybody know? All such boasting is, who wants to win the the prize? Nope. 
Anybody? Nope. Evil. Man, front row. Got it. Evil. Were you expecting him to say that? Oh, not Nolan. I'm just saying, were you expecting James to say that? <laughs> uh, he says, all such boasting is evil. Why? Why would James say that about a little boasting or a little pride? Because here's the reason. Boasting is evil because it chooses to ignore a sovereign God who gives us all the strength and the skill to work. And he is Lord over every day of our lives. Like if we get another day, if we get another moment, if we get to work or we get to play or we get to enjoy our family or we get to go and knock it out of the park in a business transaction, like it's all because God allows it. See, as one author said, oh, as God is holy, he is all holy he is only holy, he is altogether holy, and he is always holy so that sin is sinful, it is all sinful, it is only sinful, it is altogether sinful, and it is always sinful. So whether the sin is large or small in our eyes, it is heinous in the sight of God. And don't miss this part. God forgives our sin because of the shed blood of Christ. But to be clear, he doesn't tolerate it. So why do we, right? After the angelic guide announces the absolute sinfulness and wickedness of sin, this is what he does in the vision. The angelic guide thrusts sin back into the basket and then thrusts that big heavy lid back on top of the basket to seal it up. He wants nothing to do with sin. He rejects it to the fullest. In this vision, God is calling us to stop excusing our sin and coddling our sin. You remember the red lizard guy in the, in the beginning, right? You remember, he's like, oh, it's just a little sin. I can't make it without that sin. And this, this vision is calling us to stop coddling our sin and stop justifying our sin. And instead, this vision is calling us to make war on our sin. A couple of months ago, I, was really, I shared this with my pod, my men's small group. I was really wrestling in my heart with, with just my wife. And I was wrestling with how I really felt like she wasn't doing the things that I wanted her to do. And she wasn't thinking about me enough. You guys ever think like that? No, you guys are, you guys are better than I am. I know. And I was wrestling in that moment. And I was recognizing that I was putting a little distance between me and my wife, that I was kind of giving her in the cold shoulder relationally. Like I, I wasn't being warm and affectionate and, and showing her respect. And I was just mad, though. I was like, man, God, if you could just, you know, fix her. You know what I'm saying? And then you don't know what I'm saying. All right. So through prayer, through prayer, I feel like the Lord was like, raise your eyes. Your eyes are too low. You're looking too low on the ground. You're looking at yourself. Raise your eyes to my holiness. Raise your eyes and look at me. The problem is not your wife. The problem is you, David. The problem is you. And I felt in that moment, God showed me his holiness. And he's like, you're just justifying your own sin. Like, you don't want to take responsibility for the sin in your life, the pride, the selfishness, the, the wanting to be served and not to serve. And in that moment, God gave me a gift. (laughs) 
He gave me the gift of showing me my sin and he gave me the gift of his mercy and I thanked him that he would forgive me when I'm so messed up. And he gave me the gift of his spirit and I said, we're gonna make war. I didn't say it quite like that, but I was like, we're gonna make war. I'm gonna reject coddling this and playing pity party and playing my little violin, you know. I'm gonna make war on sin. As one pastor said, love this quote, there needs to be a mean streak in Christianity, but not against others, against your own sin. He bases this on Romans 8, 13. Listen to this text. Paul, the apostle Paul says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death or kill the deeds of the body, think about that red lizard on the shoulder with the sword of the spirit, the word of God, the power of the spirit. If you put to death, or kill the deeds of the body, you will live. Why? For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So sons and daughters, by the Spirit, make war on your sin. Do not make war against Muslims. Do not make war against Hindus or Buddhists. Don't make war against atheists or secularists or liberals. Don't make war against transgendered people or other denominations or nominal or half-hearted Christians. Don't make war against difficult wives or husbands or difficult bosses, but make war against your own sin. And as that pastor said, against all enslaving desire for food, caffeine, sugar, chocolate, alcohol, pornography, money, the praise of men, the approval of others, power, fame against all the indifference to poverty, indifference to injustice, indifference to abortion and racism and greed that exists in our own soul. Make war on everything in us that would be okay with making peace with our sin. Final point, sin removed, sin removed. Then verse nine, Zechariah lifts his eyes again to see the two women flying on stork wings. What do they do? They pick up the basket of sin in it and they begin flying it through the sky. You guys see that, right? The sin's there. The angelic God threw that lid down on top of it to seal it up. He said, that's wickedness. And then the stork ladies they come and pick the basket up representing sin and they just start flying it off. And they're just standing there. Zachariah's like, where's it going? It's just flying through the sky. Thank you, stork ladies, you know? <laughs> and then Zachariah asks in verse 10, where are they taking the basket? And the angel says, to the land of Shinar, or that is actually Babylon, to build a house for it. And then that's how the second vision ends. And everybody's like, what? What? Okay, all right. So the angelic guide announces the sinfulness of Israel's sin, then shows them how to relate to their own sin by rejecting it. You're like, I'm a hot potato this sin. I don't want it, right? And then he left them to accomplish this really difficult task of getting rid of their own sin until stork ladies, all right? Notice that the stork ladies are agents from God. They're ag agents from God or messengers from God from heaven to come to earth to deal with our sin. See, the good news in this vision is that God doesn't leave his people to deal with their sin on their own. Otherwise, it would be impossible, right? He sends the solution for sin from above. 
That's why over and over in these visions, Zechariah is saying, lift up your eyes. Lift up your face, we sang. Lift up your face. Look to God. Look to God's provision from above. See, I believe the stork ladies point us to Jesus, the coming son of God who came down from the glory of his heavenly throne and then was lifted up to die on the cross for your sins and for mine. And he paid for them so this, they could be removed. All of the imagery from the Old Testament, as far as the east is from the west. You know how far the east is from the west? In the biblical author's mind, they never connect. They never connect. And what happens is in space and time, we see John the Baptist in the New Testament looking at Jesus. And he sees Jesus coming and he says this, behold, the Lamb of God. All of this prep in the Old Testament of the sacrificial system, and then John the Baptist sees Jesus walking, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. You look. That's what behold means. Hey, check this out. Lift up your eyes. Look up. Behold the Lamb of God who, you know that phrase says, takes away. You could say removes the sins of the world. Like one of my friends mentioned to me this week, our sin could be likened to a ridiculous dirty diaper that we made, okay? You're like, I'm 40, I got you, okay? But we make some ridiculous messes, don't we? Everybody said amen, okay, yeah. But God doesn't keep each of those millions of dirty diapers around that we make so that he can constantly throw them back up in our face and tell us how much they stink. Wouldn't that be bad, kids? God was like, hey, check out this dirty diaper. That's yours, it stinks really bad, okay? He actually disposes of the dirty diapers, He disposes of them in and through Christ's death and chooses to to treat us on the basis of grace, Christ's beauty, Christ's perfection. But Jesus doesn't just remove our sins by taking our judgment. He also progressively removes our sin by coming to dwell in us by his spirit. We call this regeneration. We call this new birth where God takes a sinner and he makes him alive in the soul and their affections and their appetites. He did what he promised in the Old Testament and he can enliven you. He can make you alive together with Christ. And then he can come in to dwell. You think the Old Testament temple was amazing? You think that's awesome that God's Shekinah glory fell down on a building? In the new covenant, God comes on anyone who repents of their sins and believes in the gospel message and he comes to indwell in them in person in their heart to take up residence and he will not leave you. And part of what he's doing, yes, is providing comfort for you in sin and encouragement when you're downcast, yes. But part of it, he comes in there and when he comes in there and he makes his home in there, you don't wanna sin anymore. For the first time in your life, you wanna call sin for what it is and you wanna say, it's utterly sinful. You're utterly holy. I'm sickened and disgusted by it. I'm sorry, Lord, for the things I've done in my life, both inwardly and outwardly. And for the first time you say, God, show me your mercy. God, would you work in my life so I will hate sin and I will make war. That's the glory of the new birth. That regeneration results in this sanctification process that happens from the point when you're born again to the end of your life. And you roll out of this progressive sanctification into eternal glorification with God. 
and the new heavens and the new earth. The stork ladies point us up to Christ, to his power to remove sin, but also for his power to come in and remake us again and again. You like that remodeling, right? You're struggling and God sees the broken, dirty floorboards and the mold all over the drywall. And he comes in and he doesn't say, I'm out of here, this is disgusting. No, he comes in in his love and he recreates us in Jesus until Christ is formed in each of his children. And he's committed to the process all the way until the end. That's the hope of the gospel. Finally, as Vision 7 wraps up, I see this encouraging point. Israel's sin is taken by those stork lady messengers of God to Shinar or Babylon. See, Vision 2 opens with Israel being reminded that they were exiled to Babylon because of their sin. That's sad, right? But Vision 7 concludes by telling a repentant Israel because of God's great love for you and God's great power in your life, he's not gonna exile you again. He's gonna work however he has to to exile your sin. He's gonna be committed to the process of loving you as his people and working to bring sin out of your life so that you can really believe what the man in the, in the beginning of my story of my sermon didn't believe. He was like, what if I get rid of that red lizard? How am I going to function in life? And what this text is setting up is to say, hey, look, there's a better way. There's greater peace and joy in knowing Christ and following him and let him snip and prune away and, and refine you. There's greater joy there than anything you can find in embracing and holding on to your sin. See, God's going to take their sin to a faraway, distant place like Babylon and build their sin a permanent house over there so it has no chance of returning to his people. See, the future for God's people, know this, is the completion of his sanctifying work in them. God will be completely glorified as he glorifies his people on that day, body, soul, and spirit in the heavenly land where we'll reign with him forever. God's people will dwell in the new and holy Jerusalem, we're going to dwell there without our sin. You got me? You say, what about other people's sin? Hey, if you don't have this reality of like, I'm my greatest enemy, then you're missing something, right? Because God can't extend mercy to your sin if you're so concerned about other people's sin, okay? So this reality that's coming is the new heavens and the new earth where we will be freed from our sins. There will be no more internal opposition to the rule of Jesus. And every person who's a child of God says, amen. And everyone who joined themselves to the Babylons of this world, Revelation 18 tells us that the Babylons of this world are destined for eternal destruction and they're gonna take their sins with them and God's gonna deal with all sin once and for all. A couple of applications and then we're gonna transition to baptism. Non-Christians, we don't want God's work of judgment to happen to you because it already happened for you at the cross. Would you believe that today? 
If you've rolled in here and you're like religious or you're moral, but you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus, I'm telling you, God's judgment fell on Christ so that you could be freed and so that you could come to him this morning and live the life that he desires for you to live. Second, Christians, we must continue to see sin rightly. So a couple of applications. Is there any sin in your life right now that you're acting like there's no big, it's no big deal and God's brought the spotlight on it in love? He's not bringing the hammer in condemnation like a loving heavenly father. He's saying, you don't want that. You don't want that. Lay it down. Lay down your burden. I have the power to help you with this. How can you repent right now of it and make war on it today in the Spirit's power? And as you do, I love this Puritan's quote. He says, as you make that battle, for every one look that you take at your own sin, take 10 to Christ. You like that? That's why Hebrews 12 says, fix your eyes on your sin. No, lay aside your weight and every sin that easily entangles you and fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. He's saying with Zechariah, look up. For every one look you take on your sin, take 10 on your redeemer. Keep fleeing to Jesus by faith, people of God. He loves us. He spared us from judgment. And rely on his Holy Spirit who will never stop doing the work to expel sin from our hearts and lives until one day we see him face to face. So how can you, in great humility and in great love, encourage other believers in your life, in your church family, to do the same? God will enable his sons and daughters to put to death the deeds of the flesh by his Spirit. So let's make war on our sins. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for... Your good word from the book of Zechariah, vision two and seven. And God, we just entrust this time to you, Lord. We pray that you would be dealing in hearts, including my own. And Lord, that you would help us see the hope and the mercy that we find in Jesus. And Lord, I pray today, even today, that you bring about the new birth in people's lives who don't know you. And for your people, give us a greater vision of not just your holiness and our sin, but of the mercy that you have for sinners. And Lord, help us to look to you, Lord, for the the strength to fight our sin for your glory. God, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.